Welcome to Minority Report. I'm your host, Salomon Flamenco. On today's episode, we feature Leilit, which is a diasporic dance party for the Swana region, which I think is really cool and different for this show. I'm really happy they came on, to be honest. I'm a big fan. I had them on because I've been to their parties. I've been to the parties in Elsewhere. I've been to their party here in D.C. Uh, just recently, this past Friday, uh, March 18th, for anyone counting. I'm a big fan of what they do, and I'm a big fan of their ethos, right? Which I think is just really forward-looking and inclusive. The work Lilith has done is definitely an inspiration for me and for what I aim to do with this podcast. This is Leilit. I hope you all enjoy. Hello, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. Forrest, can you please tell the audience who are you and what do you do? My name is Phil. I'm currently in Montreal where I live and I'm a co-founder of Leilit, which is a, a party based in New York and Montreal uh, that highlights Swana artists and music from, from the region and the diaspora. I guess that's a quick way to say it. You can go the long way if you want. I feel like this is definitely the better. I feel like this, this podcast is going to be the, the long way. <laughs> yeah, more, more than likely. Let's talk a little bit more about Leilit because it's really cool. I've been to um, adjacent shows in New York. And from the get-go, I thought it was a really interesting thing that's happening, like almost this new artistic movement. Can you talk a little bit about how it came about and what's inspired it? Of course. I mean, uh, we certainly didn't start a movement, but we're definitely a, a part a part of one. I would say it's an ongoing movement that has ups and downs in, in history. But currently, the, the latest phase, I feel like started a little bit when Trump got in power and we, uh, I'm, I live in Montreal. I'm from Lebanon and I've been in Montreal 20 years now. And, uh, I'm in a band called Wake Island and we're both Lebanese and we've been struggling a little bit throughout the almost 15 years now where we started in 2012 or something like that. So yeah, 10 years of existence of dealing with like. Arab identity in North America. That was always a thing for us. So when Trump came into power, my band partner was in New York, living in New York temporarily for like a few years. So we would go down there a lot and we could feel this tension that was happening as the administration was like doubling down. There was a Muslim ban and all this stuff back then. So it seemed like there was kind of a renewed uh, oppression on, on multiple minorities or obviously the black community and all like, I mean, it was, it was heightened oppression, I guess, coming into light or at least in subtle ways and non-subtle ways. And I feel like a lot of communities started really doing something about it in the art sector and a lot of parties and a lot of musicians started popping up, particularly in the black women trans like these communities started really waking up and and rebelling uh that was definitely a source of inspiration for us and we're like hey i mean our community also is in this situation where we are being constantly looked down on oppressed 
uh, racialized, particularly since 9-11. I mean, let's not forget that. Yeah. So I guess this anti-Arab sentiment has always been there in some way, shape or form, but it's grown a lot uh, with things like 9-11 and, and the arrival of like Trump and the right in power. So, so it became almost natural for us to like affirm ourselves uh, as artists. And uh, we just wanted to share the, these parts of our culture with people in, in the United States and be like, hey, like you have these preconceived ideas of who we are and what we do and what our music sounds like. In our case, it's really music. So, so here's a taste of what we actually sound like today and what we actually look like today and what we care about. And so I guess that's a bit how it happened. It was very, it wasn't planned to be like what it is today. This wasn't the idea. The idea was just really to gather in a small room in New York and, and exist really and rediscover our own roots mm -hmm. because for years and years particularly after 9-11 we were just forced in some ways to erase who we were this part of us to fit in because it was really not trendy <laughs> no. to be to be from the, the middle east back then and of course uh, i talk a lot about arab identity and the middle east and everything but really it extends to the whole region spanning from like Morocco and North Africa all the way to, to Afghanistan and Pakistan. I mean, we, as a party, we have this focus on, on what we call the Swana region, which is Southwest Asia and North Africa, which is a term that, that not many people know yet, but it's a term that we're trying to use to, to define the region that is typically called the Middle East and North Africa, because these, these terms are very, we call them a bit colonialist in a way that they're they're positioning our region in respect to where the other ones are. So it's like the Middle East as opposed to the West, you know? Yeah. So, so we're trying to get away from these terms, not in any type of radical way, but it's just a, a more proper way to describe the, the region that, that we're catering to. Yeah. Anyway, there's a lot to say about this, obviously. So. No, of course. And even when doing research, I noticed that. I noticed the difference that it was seemed very purposeful to say Swana as opposed to Mina which is, I feel, mm -hmm. maybe more and well-known, right? Yeah. yeah, I mean, even Mina is not that well-known in the mainstream. So we figured, why push Mina when we could just push Swana at this point? Uh, but it is, I mean, we're not very radical about it in a sense that sometimes, as I just did, like I'll use the terms Middle East because at some point you have to also explain what you're talking about. Like if I just say Swana, no one's going to really know what I'm talking about. So I explain it and then eventually it will become a bit more clear. Uh, but it's just, it's just a conscious effort to, to allow ourselves to name our region the way we want it, because, yeah. uh, our region is one that's been subject to colonization for like centuries at this point. So it's the way to reclaim it in a honestly, pretty soft way. There's no, I, I don't feel like there's any violence around the world mm -hmm. now or anything like that. There's a lot of things I want to pull from what you just said too. And I'm thinking about it, but almost in the wake of the Trump presidency, right? I'm Central American. My family is from El Salvador. So I kind of, I don't want to say exactly understand, but I'm a part of an ethnic group that is also politicized. So it, it, what fascinates me about this is the reclaiming your identity part, right? And affirming who you are when your identity has been politicized. Uh -huh. How have you navigated that? How have you navigated between being focusing on the cultural aspect or just 
living in this zone that you are put into and not so much want to be a part of. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, there's two things at play here. It's it, There's the politicization of the identity, for sure, that kind of m makes you and encourages you to suppress it, mm -hmm. uh, particularly for immigrants who move to America or Canada. Canada and America are very different, but let's just talk a bit broadly now about North America. Um, but on the other hand, there's also, in my experience, at least my personal experience, there is a pre-existing uh, kind of inferiority complex when it comes to looking at the United States from the outside, from like in my case, from Lebanon, as this like wonderful place and free place. And like, there's this whole US marketing, you know, about like how amazing it is and how everything's perfect and human rights and everything. So. We grow up adoring everything that comes out of Europe and the United States, and our culture is shaped by these, these products and these films and these music bands that come out of there. And from childhood, I wasn't encouraged that much to be connected to my own culture because we have this fascination, particularly in Lebanon, with, with what's happening in the West, you know? So arriving in, in North America already, I was like ready to dive into that culture. And at the same time, I was told you can also forget your own culture. Like, don't bother because we hate you right now. You just bombed us. So, so these two factors together are, I mean, it's not just coming from the outside. It's coming also from inside the community. This kind of almost not shame, but it's a form of shame of like, our culture is inferior. And so let's focus on this other supremacist culture in a way. Uh, I mean, it's a super complex subject, but like, I'm trying to like s simplify it, but there's these, I feel like there's these two forces at hand here. And of course, when, when you hear around you, oh, Arabs are terrorists every day and every day and every day and every day, and everyone from every other community starts thinking it, not just like white people, I mean, Latino people, everyone, everyone's pretty much grouped behind this idea in 2001, 2002 of like, fear mm -hmm. same way they're they're doing it again with russia now and i mean it's like it's the same fear mongering thing that happens and we were just happened to be at the center of it we were at the center of it before in the gulf war with the first george bush i mean it's, it's just it's cycles mm -hmm. of villains in the u.s I don't know if Latinx people were ever the villains, but I guess, I guess in the, in the context of like drug wars and all, all this narrative. Yeah. Uh, but, but in terms of the terrorism, it was like, uh, either Russians or Arabs intermittently for 10 years at a time. And now I guess Chinese have made an, an appearance now as, as a terrorist. So it's a weird, it's weird what, what is done to immigrants in, on that sense, when you come to America, um, and yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's very easy to let go of your culture. Like it's a very difficult process for some and very simple process for others, depending on who you are and where you're from originally. But yeah, it was, I didn't realize until 10 years later, how dehumanizing it was to actually lose this connection with my home culture. And I used to go back to Lebanon every year, once or twice even. But even there, people are obsessed with American culture. So it's easy to, to lose yourself. And so doing this party for us was a way to like 
force ourselves in a way to like reconnect musically at the very least to this, to this culture. And we're like, let's just do research and play this music as, as like a motivator, you know, like, oh, we're going to be DJs. We weren't really DJs before that. Like we, we had DJed a little bit for fun, but, uh, in terms of me and Nadine, which is my band partner in Wake Island, we, I would say that Laylit was our first real DJ experience because DJing is not just playing songs. It's really about sharing and discovery and everything. So our partner though, our third partner, Safir, uh, Shamon, he's from Syria. He, on the other hand, came from a very different musical background. He had extensive knowledge of, of music from the region and, and this exchange between us is also part of how the Laylit started and why it started and why these three people, there was a, a beautiful, uh, exchange of music and discovery through each other that, that really encouraged us. And, and his story is very different from ours. Uh, and I'm not here to like speak on his behalf, but every immigrant has a story, you know, it's not immigrants as one big group, you know, so. I can only speak for myself and extrapolate a bit for others. You know? Yeah, of course. But I'm, I'm really interested too, because when I read about Laylit and the greater movement of Swana parties that are coming up, right? There's Laylit, there's Haza, there's Disco Tehran. I'm really fascinated in where you see yourselves in the greater conversation. Uh, I mean, we, we have a pretty clear vision of what we're trying to do. And we really love and respect all the parties. As a matter of fact, we encourage each other all the time. We just had the Hazza party within Leilet party in Montreal three days ago. Mm -hmm. um, it's very important for us to, to foster the scene and not just our party, because we really believe that there's a lot of space. We're not fighting for space. Uh, there's a huge lack everywhere in the US, everywhere in Canada, like there's space. Mm -hmm. uh, so we're not going at it from a competitive mindset at all. And each party is fulfilling naturally fulfilling a different role. And what we're trying to do is very clear to us. Like we're really trying, I mean, there's a few things, but what we're trying to do is to really take the Arab Tuana dance floor, look that it looks to the future, you know, like we're trying to not reinvent it, but just keep it up to date because a lot of uh, parties before us currently even are, are playing on stereotypes a lot. And we don't like doing that. We don't like any orientalization, exoticization of, of our culture. Um, there's so much going on that is groundbreaking musically in, in from the region, from the diaspora artists. And we really want to be this platform where these artists and this music can be played and recontextualized in the modern world. Mm -hmm. This is not like a nostalgia party at all. There's a nostalgia element in it for sure, because we do respect that aspect of the culture. It exists at every one of our parties. There's always this kind of section where it's like pop and like nostalgia and like, let's reminisce a little bit, but it's always looking forward. We really try to look to the future, change these perceptions of what a party like ours should be or could be mm. and, and try to really like, I don't like to say educate because it's a bit pretentious, but we're really trying to present something to people that they haven't seen before 
even though it's right there, accessible to them from their culture, they understand it, they understand the words, they understand the references. But I feel like a lot of, because we're catering a lot to, to immigrants since we're, we're in America, you know, so there are so many ways of immigration and a lot of, a lot of uh, immigrants just stalled culturally, like they stuck with what they knew and they just keep perpetuating it out of nostalgia and out of like comfort mm -hmm. to just feel connected. But it's been 50 years, 100 years sometimes. And, and we need to upgrade this. We need to upgrade this definition and this identity uh, so that we're seeing like a modern and thriving culture, not something of, of the past that is just perpetuating itself. So that's one of that's one of the big missions uh, we have, and there's other other aspects of how we also function. Is in terms of representation, it's it's extremely important for us to change who has a voice in on the scene. So we're talking about giving voices to women, giving voices to queer people, and that's something that is not very typical of our community in the past. Of like having a strong that strong of a of a presence for these communities and minorities and re reinventing what it like, not reinventing, re uh, shaping, sorry, what a, a scene looks like. Cause it used to be like a bunch of pop stars and a bunch of men and a bunch of like, you know, so we're also trying to, to, to work hard on this when it comes to booking and, and programming and oftentimes also encouraging artists to get into it that did not even think that there was a place for them. So. Uh, but all that's a very tricky process, but, but I think so far we're, we're doing well on this front and, uh, yeah, trying to think also like in terms, yeah, I mean, I don't like to compare with other parties cause I think every party has a place and a role, but really, really trying to, to center on music and artists and, and creating this scene mm -hmm. and creating this, uh, this feeling that, that the community is evolving and mm -hmm. modern and exciting and worth mentioning and obviously taking space in the nightlife you know like not be on the fringe not be a party that's exclusively designed to be attended by swana people like it's very important for us to have very diverse crowds uh we don't exclude anyone because we do want to have this friction on the dance floor because we really believe that by creating this friction between people and people actually meeting each other and seeing each other. That's how like mentalities evolve, you know? So that's definitely part of our mission is to bring people together that are not used to be together, whether communities meeting or within even our community. I was mentioning the queer aspect, for example, it wasn't, it's not very common in history to find parties like ours where you have drag queens and queer dancers and queer DJs around you everywhere, you know, and, and for members of the community who are not raised with this open-mindedness to be around people like this is eye-opening. It can be tricky at first, but once you spend an hour or two, you're like, oh, okay, well, it's all good now. You know, like I can let them be, you can all be in the same room, enjoying the same common thing. And there's an invisible bond that gets created between people. And that's also where all the nostalgia and pop comes in and it's, but it's whole power. It's to bring people together. Oh, we all like that same song. So we're at this moment, we're together. 
-hmm. And this is like subliminal, but it, when you're dancing, uh, okay, when you're someone who was raised, say, uh, homophobic, and your favorite song comes on, and there's a bunch of uh, drag queens around you dancing to that same song, there's something that happens subliminally where you're like, oh, we have something in common, which is usually when you go into stereotypical thinking, you're like, oh, well, I'm homophobic, they're a drag queen, therefore we have nothing in common. So we're creating these little moments where people share a moment, share a song, share a dance floor, hoping to contribute a little bit to, to this uh, uh, acceptance. And that works both ways, by the way. It's not just, I mean, we also have to, to have a certain amount of understanding of where some members of our community who are close-minded come from and how they were raised and, and allow them to, to evolve too, you know, along with us. So it's all, it's all a big process uh, and it's way less messy than, than we thought it would be, actually. So that's, a, that's the good news. That's what I was thinking too, right? I mean, that is the beautiful part of music. Like there is that connectivity to it that everyone can be drawn towards, right? Where mm -hmm. it's, even if we disagree or we have been raised in these different contexts, there is this pillar that combines us, right? It like helps us become, find common ground, you know? Yeah, because I mean, a lot of times conflict is very wordy and very intellectual. So when you bring music and dancing into the equation, these things go away. So it becomes about emotions. And at the end of the day, human emotions, as complex as they are, are very basic. So it's very easy to find common ground emotionally with people that you completely disagree with. And things like music and, and films and dance, these are the things that tell you to shut up for a second and just like feel something instead of say something and i think that helps a lot yeah i want to go back to something because it was interesting when you were talking about this whenever what first drew me to Laylit, and i think i said this at the beginning but i'll repeat it is just it does feel like it's at the forefront of something even if i myself maybe don't have the language to voice that right like it is a part of this movement that i think is really great and is at the forefront of bringing this new culture or not new culture but the future Right. It's very forward thinking in that way. But I'm curious to get to that point. What were some of the challenges in cultivating this space? Okay. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely a movement happening. I don't know where it started. I don't know where it's going, but it's not just in music. It's not just in parties. We're seeing it happen in film. We're seeing it happen in comedy. It's there's something. And we, when we started, it wasn't felt as much as it is today. So it's hard to pinpoint how much influence we've had, how much influence we received. Like it's, it's an organic process. And I think it started with 9-11, ruminating. At some point, the oppression has to be come out in some way. Mm -hmm. In terms of challenges, I mean, the number one challenge was to make, I guess, venues trust us. Uh, it wasn't challenge in the sense that people were closing their doors on us. We were very strategic about which venues we chose to operate in and how we grew. Uh, we wanted to go to venues who were encouraging diversity and encouraging tolerance and inclusivity. So we started on a 50, 50 people dance floor in a place called Moodring in uh, Brooklyn. It's one of our favorite places to the day. It's just a very 
a space that was just open to try things that weren't thinking about like bar sales or anything before we booked them. I mean, obviously we started on a Wednesday night there because I mean, that's how it is. You have to prove yourself. So I think that was a challenge is to prove ourselves. And, and honestly, with the help of the crowd who just showed up every time and every time bigger and bigger and bigger, we had to switch venues four times in, in two and a half years. And, and I think that's at this point, part of some, part of what we contributed to in New York, uh, people like us in Disco Tehran and a party called Jella party also, who started a little bit before us is to, to, to establish this, this trust that our community is going to show up, which is what promoters and bookers and venues care about. Uh, cause we are operating within the music industry here, which is uh, tough. It's a very tough industry. It's one I've been in for 15 years now. So I'm, I've lost my, my illusions about what it is and what it isn't. I, like, I know how to approach it. And we understood from the beginning that we're going to have to play that game a little bit. Uh, but we wanted to play it fair and square and, and show pe and, and work the industry from the side. We're, we're going to do our thing and you're come to us because we're going to prove it without the mechanisms of the industry that we're capable of doing something like this. So we just grew and grew and grew until now, like we're occupying one of the hottest space in Brooklyn and we take over the whole, the whole venue every couple of months. And now we're every, every month or two, there's like a presence of our community that is like very, very strong, whether it's at our parts or the other parties taking over the cool spaces, not fringe areas, not far away places. We're not doing this in Jersey, you know, I mean, it's totally fine to do it in Jersey, but the idea is to, when you're able to go to the epicenter of world culture, almost at this point and take a space, a large space, it really helps perceptions. It helps other cities pay notice. Other communities wake up and say, oh my God, who thought we could actually have these parties? Like the number of messages we received from people across the States, across Canada saying, oh my God, I never thought this could happen. Come to our city, come to our city, come to our city. And people in the cities we go to writing us saying, I never in my life thought I would ever be in a room like this because it was kind of the we knew that no one would trust our community to be able to hold events in cool spaces, not restaurants or cafes with not the sound system or nothing. So people never thought that I could party like this. And they never thought that they could party like this also as queer people. That's a very important thing. Uh, so I think with the party, we've reached a place where, where we are now a force that people can't ignore. So when we approach venues now, we come with, with a CV, you know, we're like, yeah. we've sold out like all these venues in all these cities. And so you can trust us. And, and we understand that they're not here to do charity. You know, they're here for numbers. They want to sell it's tough after the pandemic. So it's not like, oh, venues are evil. Uh, it's just a matter of understanding how they work and also be selective who you work with, because everyone wants a piece of this now. Mm -hmm. And a lot of promoters want to come grab a piece of the pie. Some of them from the community, some of them not from the community, some of them with good intentions, some of them with bad intentions. So we have to filter this. Also, we work with a lot of artists and obviously when we highlight artists at the party, random promoters will show up to them. 
I want to give them opportunities, which is really one of our goals is for all these artists to have opportunities. But not everyone is doing it for the right reason. So it's about trying to also understand who's who in the industry. Other challenges, honestly, is, is that we're, our community didn't have enough artists when we started. Like there weren't enough DJs to book. Um, so we went very fast into not a headliner kind of mentality as a party, but more of a let's create new headliners. So we trusted and we still trust starting DJs. I mean, we, we, we developed a culture at Laylit where we announced the lineup maybe a week or 10 days ahead of the party. And very often we're either sold out or close to sold out before we even tell people who's playing. So there's this trust that that's happening, which allows us to cultivate names and artists and elevate them. So that was a challenge. And I think we've reached a point now where we have a good pool to work from, but it's still challenging. Uh, because when you occupy a place like elsewhere, you have to like, there's the stress also in a way of like making sure that we reimburse our cost and the venue and that like, filling it up. And so it's another game. And usually that game is played with headliners. It's like, oh, you get a headliner and then you fill out the room and we don't play that game. So we're trying to, that's a big challenge for us is to trying to play this kind of mid-level, I guess, industry game without following all the rules that make it work. So we always have doubts. Like we always take risks and we're like, how will this go? How will that go? Which is part of the fun also. Yeah, sorry to interrupt, but just by the nature of this project, you kind of have to break rules. I mean, this sound, you know, like yeah. that's the interesting part about it. Like I did not know that part about how you find headliners. And it was my next question was how do you cultivate and find these artists but i mean that's that's just incredible you know yeah i mean there's yeah there's because we focus a lot on local artists but we also i mean as we grew bigger we now have the ability to get artists from abroad mm -hmm. and that's a whole other challenge because it's one thing to get artists from other diaspora so from london or from paris or something like that which we now can afford and which we do when it comes to bringing artists from the swana region that's a whole other challenge we're talking visa issues. We're talking, uh, I mean, try to book a Palestinian artist at the party, which we try and we keep trying. It's very difficult. I mean, they don't even have a passport at this point in a lot of the times. And even if they do, getting a visa to play the United States is increasingly difficult because you have to, it's not just a matter of getting a tourist visa, which is already hard enough, but musicians have to get performance visas. There's just actually a law that is proposed now to like to increase the price by like five times of how much it would take. And you have to do it like six months ahead and pay lawyer fees. It's very, very prohibitive. And believe it or not, it's the same for Canada. Like it's not even just the other region. It's everyone who's not American. So that's one of the big challenges we have is to figure out logistics of how to bring artists from the region here. Uh, which is also part of our mission is to expose people to them and to give, to create this network. I didn't mention it earlier, but one of the, the goals of Let It is to create this network and circuit, a touring circuit, because other than the world music touring circuit, there isn't really a circuit for a Jordanian band to come play in America and have an audience. So we're creating, like by going to multiple cities, that's our reasoning is to like be able to one day 
and actually we're doing it already, be like, hey, you're an artist from Jordan, you're an, uh, uh, an Iraqi artist in London, come, we'll give you five shows mm -hmm. and do a tour, for example. So these things are, are now increasingly possible. And yeah, like, I mean, there's a lot of challenges, but a lot of them are logistical. Um, but I would say, yeah, the biggest challenges was to get the trust of venues and of the wider public to to understand and break those stereotypes they had about about our culture. And luckily enough, other parties around us were working towards the same goal in different ways. So so it became a, a cumulative effect. Mm -hmm. you know? I, I don't want to ask about that last part too, about breaking stereotypes. Because by this point, I heard about um, Leilid from a friend. But doing research, you've been showcased in the New York Times, you've been showcased in Global News. How have you, how do I phrase this? What have you made of the reaction so far? And what have you considered when reading them and listening to them? I mean, the reaction, you mean from the public or? I guess it's the... It's twofold, right? Because initially I thought about from the public, but then also from just mainstream recognition. Yeah, I mean, the public was honestly, the moment they step into the party, they like it. So so we, we didn't have an issue convincing the general public. We had some issues convincing our own, our own community sometimes that, because at the beginnings of the party, and even now, and when we go to new cities, the real hunger is for like the pop music, for example. So, so to convince a crowd that has been waiting their whole life to hear these pop songs and dance to them, that, oh, listen to these techno tracks too, and listen to these funk tracks too, that, that was definitely a work in progress, which we're very conscious of. And we deliberately paced it out little by little. So that our crowd is not like hits in the head with everything because there's no point doing that. So we, we still provide a bit of everything. Uh, so that, that part of the public reaction we needed to work on and, and be conscious of. And honestly, we were happy to deliver these goods because, and particularly for the queer community, because these are songs and that we were not allowed in a way to dance. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a gay man myself. So growing up in Lebanon, I, I couldn't just go and like dance to some like pop stars and like move my hips or everything. Like, this is absolutely not okay culturally. Mm -hmm. So there is that aspect that made us really stick to this kind of nostalgia pop aspect for a little bit and little by little bring in the rest of the music. And, the, and then as people were enjoying it, they started telling their friends, as you say. So it, everything that's happened to us, we owe to our audience who comes and enjoys themselves and then tells their friends. It's all been word of mouth. In all honesty, we have not spent a single dollar of marketing since we started, not a dollar. And it's because when you create these kinds of dance floors and fulfill these needs, which are not just dancing needs, they're just emotional needs. You know, this, you're, when I go to parties like this, I mean, I, I went to parties like this before even starting this and, and you feel nourished, you feel seen, you go back home and you're like, okay, time of my life. This is the best night of my life. You call your friends, you start telling your friends, Next thing you know, you're telling your Swedish friends about it. And then they're like, oh, what's happening? That's the new cool thing in town, whatever. And then they just come to the party and they tell their friends. So there's the snowball effect. And when this happens, 
then occasionally a journalist will be there and they're like, oh my God, what is this? I'm going to write about it. And so you end up in the New York Times. And that was a very humbling thing for us. We, we didn't see it coming. When it came, we didn't think it was going to be like a full page like that. But it's just because we don't operate with that mindset. So things naturally come in that sense. Like we didn't, uh, we didn't pitch to be, to be featured in the New York Times. And the most beautiful thing about that article is that it was an article about the team more so than it was an article about us or another party. So it was just an article about exactly what we're trying to do, which is to take space. So we're like, hey, our community exists and we're nice. I mean, then go look at the comments on the New York Times article. And then, I mean, it's the internet. So, I mean, we, didn't, we weren't very touched by them, but it's funny how anything that anyone posts, you always have trolls on there. But I don't think it's representative of the actual sentiment. I think people are starting to understand that in many ways, like it's cool to be involved with our community now. And if that's our only achievement, I'll be very happy. You know, like I would fold everything and stop tomorrow if that's what has already been achieved. And I think there is this perception now changing in people's minds, at least in the underground. I mean, we're still an underground party, you know, uh, that we're adding cool to terrorists in people's heads. So now there's like Arabs are terrorists and also they're cool. So we're like on the way, on the way to, to, to becoming a complex community like every other community, you know? And we're behind, I mean, in terms of like the work that was done, there wasn't a lot of cultural work done, I think. I mean, there's a lot obviously, but it hasn't been seen by a lot of people yet uh in america uh as opposed to say the black communities or latinx communities which with all the shit that comes with being part of these communities the cultures like you've worked hard enough in these communities to get to a certain mainstream status whether in music or film or art or, but there hasn't yet been that moment for swana for arabs for for this community where where there's staples and where you see like shows on nbc or shows on uh, HBO representing, this doesn't exist yet. We're not there yet. Uh, and I'm hoping that this movement is just gonna put us as a community where, where we're able to express ourselves and, and be part of the American uh, tapestry, I guess, of, of culture. Uh, but then it doesn't mean our, our issues will end and racism will end or anything, but at the very least, we'll be able to express ourselves. Yeah. I think that's a really interesting point too, too because um, yeah, when I first entered the scene, when I first was a part of the scene in my own small way, what struck me immediately was, how do I say this? I was at once, it was like a fish out of water, right? It was something I'd never really experienced just because of my own worldview. But I, I it was still so beautiful and I still felt a part of it. It was just, a, it was good vibes. There's no other way to like, intellectualize it or make it into academia it was just good vibes with everyone having fun and participating in the way that they knew how right yeah, yeah. and i mean one thing we definitely pay very much attention to is how other communities react to our party and i've always felt that people from from other minorities have a very particular connection with our party because they recognize it 
they recognize the sentiment. And I think that's, that's really important. And when you compare that, uh, with like a, the white, white audience, for example, I hate to generalize like this, but it's a different relationship because the white audience we have is, is, is one that comes in with respect and they come in with curiosity. They don't understand necessarily the, the importance of this culturally from a, from a racial standpoint, but they could understand it from an oppression standpoint, because you could be white and oppressed, you could be white and you could be queer, you could be white and trans. It's not a question of white and skin color, but there is a particular aspect that is about skin color and where you come from. And that is something that, that we have this common ground with other communities. And so we're not surprised when people from El Salvador will come to the party and be like, I don't know why, but there's something here that speaks to me. And that's something we think about a lot. And, but we try not to, to segment our audience like this and, and think about a white or brown or whatever. I mean, we just hope that they will all show up. And it's not by mistake that we agree to do our party at elsewhere or decide to do it there. It's because it is a place that, that is naturally mainstream that people seek out. We don't just, we don't, our role is not just to market to people. People will seek this place out to check out what's happening because there's a trust that if it's happening there, it's worth my attention. So we do get a significant amount out of walk-ins who come in and discover the party without even having heard of it ever. It's not significant. It's not like a huge portion every night, but I would say a good 10% of the audience now at Elsewhere, it's probably a walk-in audience that is like, let's go to Elsewhere tonight and see what's happening. And hopefully from these people, we can retain some of them and, and keep keep growing like that. Yeah. I, uh, I want to talk about, what's the word you used? Segmentation, right? I want to mm -hmm. talk about that because the name world genre to me seems very broad, right? Mm -hmm. And so... This question might be a little problematic, but how would you categorize this genre? Is it Swana House? Is it, you know, what, what would you say? And then just can you talk a little bit more about the limitations of the world genre label? Well, we're against it 100%. So we never, you'll never hear that word coming from us. Like world music is, is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> like even, like it doesn't mean, like it's just so weird that it exists like honestly even french music is, is world music at this point so it's not even about racism anymore it's just about cultural laziness it's like if i don't understand the words it's world music pretty much and so i mean there's no point debating it it's just a lazy genre so in terms of what we call things i mean the reason we want to have a diverse audience is because our goal is not to have this Iraqi artists play only to Iraqis. Like the whole point is to make them, is to make where they're from irrelevant. So it's not Swana house, it's house. It's just the artist doing it just happens to be from Swana. You know, like I don't, I, we don't call it American house or, you know, I mean, I mean, you could have a subgenre just to define where it's from. There's no problem. Yeah. But I mean, the goal for us is that when an artist comes and plays techno at our party, it's not like Arab techno, it's techno, you know? And we understand that it takes 
a middle step to get there. And and so we do make a point that it's the way I guess we phrase it, it's techno made by Swana people. Mm-hmm. But it's still techno. And a lot of it sounds a lot like British techno. Like it doesn't always sound like it's from the region. Because the same way not every American song sounds like a, a southern country song. You know, like there's there's a lot of American songs who sound like French song and a lot of uh, Swedish song who sound American. So the world is like culturally very mixed now. So it's, it's very normal that when you grow up in, in Lebanon or Iraq or Jordan or whatever, you're listening to what's going on outside. And I'm not sure that's something I could generalize about Americans. I don't know that in my observation, Americans don't listen to a lot of foreign music. Uh, because the industry here is so big that you can even not even catch up. But when you're outside and there's no music infrastructure and there's very little band and very little project and it's all underground, all you, you can do easily, honestly, is just listen to what's happening in Europe and the States. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's a secondary mission of ours also is to try to like, by creating these touring circuits, try to inspire people from the region there to like, keep building infrastructures. And there's a lot of plans now in the region, uh, particularly in the uh, more of an Arab region where there's like a really big budgets and efforts to create that infrastructure, but it's a long process. And we're just trying to be the counterparts in North America where we can extend that infrastructure and create the circuits outside. Uh, Remind me what the question was. <laughs> you you answered it in a way. Drifting. You answered it in a way because I was asking how would you define the genre? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The genre. Yeah. And I, I just think it's interesting because in my mind, I agree with what you just said, but some part of me still feels like, you know, in 10, 20 years there'll be a second generation Lebanese American who will do mm-hmm. something else and then call it Lebanese house, right? Or it, it's weird how culture works like that. Like, it's all marketing when you talk about these labels, you know? <laughs> like, I mean, I'd love to spend hours talking about them, but at the end of the day, labels were created so you can go find CDs at like HMV and Virgin Records and to like, oh, let me go to the jazz section. But I mean, what's jazz? Like, it's nothing. Yeah. Like, it's just a name. And how is jazz not the same as classical music? I mean, it's all the same thing. Uh, these labels, I mean, honestly, we don't, spend too much time worried about labels because it's hard to use labels like this and not be stereotypical and limiting. So, but yeah, if you ask me, then uh, you've been to, to the DC party. I mean, there were like four genres of music. If you want to talk genres played. So I can't tell you the party is this genre. If you come to New York, there's three rooms simultaneously playing music of completely different genres. You have like Afghan funk uh, in the loft while there's like techno downstairs and a crazy like experimental techno on the other room. Like, I don't know how to define the one sound of of the party. Yeah, You could call it the Laylit sound <laughs> if you want. I like that. But... but that means nothing. But I mean, if you want to have the label, there you go. This is just reminding me of another, <laughs> I'm sorry to bring up the labels again, but it does remind me of a previous conversation I had where she was Nigerian-American, she's a fashion designer, and she talked about how labels at once are meaningful, but meaningless. Like they are whatever you want them to be, it, yeah. you know, it, but 
going back to the marketing thing, I am really impressed you guys haven't spent any marketing money because it, it sure has worked. I mean, you guys yeah. have got your name out there in this moment, in this particular scene, and it's it's great. Like, I, I there's no other way for me to say it. Like, I, I had so much fun, and I'm looking forward to the next one um, in D.C. Like, I'm going to be there. I'm really excited about it. I... I wanted to ask you another question, and I'm just curious what your thoughts were on this. What your thoughts were on this? Um, you're a queer man, you're a gay Lebanese man, and I house music originated in this very specific moment of oppression of Black and Latin queer people. Right. Yes. It's really interesting to me to kind of. I mean, did you use that as an inspiration or as a jumping-off point, or how did it influence the creation of this of this scene? Actually, very much so. For, for, let's just take a step back also and look at the musical scene uh, right now, particularly in the in the Middle East region of Swano. Uh, there's a lot of hip hop, for example. Hip hop was in no way created there. Obviously, the hip hop was created in black communities. It's the same thing I was saying earlier. It's this kind of like you recognize your struggle and someone else's struggle, and you adopt the genre. I personally think it's a beautiful thing to adopt genres. Uh, there's there's few cases uh, where it's I guess not okay, and we have we can have this whole cultural appropriation discussion. But really, at the end of the day, it just when when black people started making hip hop, I don't know that they were conscious of how much impact it would have on 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 an international level. And how inspiring it would be for someone who's oppressed in uh, Egypt to be like, oh my God, this is how I want to express myself because I'm so inspired by how these people freed themselves artistically. Uh, same goes with house and techno. Uh, I became very interested in, in, in techno music uh, around 2016. Uh, when I found out about his history, because I used to think of techno as this like whatever trashy dance music in nightclubs. And this was my perception of it. I loved it, but I grew up with it in Lebanon. There's a big electronic music culture in Lebanon. So all the partying is like techno in house. It's not like, but this is the overwhelming, like cool party, right? But I always dismissed it as kind of like, because it's very Euro techno that we would listen to. So when I found out, I read this book, uh, called, oh my God, I forgot the name of the book. But it was a book on the history of techno. The name will come come back to me. Um, and reading about how it started in Detroit and all the, the struggles and the communities and the underground parties and how it came from disco and all this stuff. I'm like, I know this story. I know this feeling. And it's the creation of art to 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 deal with oppression and to deal with being put on the sidelines because that's literally what was happening in detroit like these communities were literally put on the side actually downtown detroit was completely like abandoned and these people just found drum machines that are like let's have parties and they did this and that's in many ways what the seed was for me, at least to be like, oh, a party is not just a party. It can be 
way more. It can create a movement. It can create a social change. And I'd never thought of parties like that before until, until I found out how all these like disco and techno parties started. Uh, so I became very fascinated with Detroit as a city. And that's the, one of the main reasons that we do the party there. Like, uh, before going to like any other bigger cities, we like, we need to go to Detroit and honor the city and the heritage of how it inspired us to, to do what we do. So when, when making music, there's a difference between DJing techno and making techno mm -hmm. and, or making hip hop. And so you had to approach it with the respect it deserves with the knowledge of its history and, and how it's now transcended its, its history. I really believe these genres are really have transcended the people who created them. But I also think it's important to acknowledge. I mean, I don't think anyone doesn't acknowledge where hip hop comes from at this point. It's pretty, pretty obvious. And, but techno and disco though, most people don't realize yeah. where it came from and they don't realize the, the suffering that came with it and the exploitation that came from it after. So we're very conscious of it. Uh, I don't think it's in any way exploitative to, to play this music. I think it would be if we had no idea what was going on and why, where it came from. Uh, but it's also not our prerogative to educate everyone about these particular issues. And I think it's in, in the, the black and Latin communities, it's become an imperative. We hear it more and more. I mean, all the way to Beyonce now. So I'm very happy to see this education happening because we can't do everything, you know, like we're just, we're just one little drop in the sea. But when you see around you that, oh, someone's got this, then you have to trust other parties, other artists, other communities that we're all working towards the same idea, which is inclusion. So it, I don't feel like it's my job to educate people on the history of techno because it's not my history. What I can educate is how techno has influenced our community and how people in our community have reacted to it and used it as a tool. Uh, but there's tricks, you know, like very often in my personal DJ set, I will bring in some early Detroit tracks to mix with tracks that I like from Egypt, for example, just to keep the context alive, you know, yeah. uh, like I've a lot of like Juan Atkins and stuff like that always ends up there in the set just to, to make it exist and acknowledge its, its existence in, in that way. Yeah. I don't know if that answers your, your questions. Absolutely does. I, I, I never asked though, what genre did you, or sorry, what was the type of music you made before this? Cause you told me you weren't, you weren't a DJ at first. You got into Well, I'm still, I'm still a musician and still, still making music and the music, I mean, I've gone through a lot of phases, uh, with my band. And I mean, we started as a prog rock band back in 2006, then we became a little more rock more like just indie rock i guess what we used to call indie rock again on labels <laughs> and now actually the last record we did was an homage to detroit techno adapted to our story and adapted to our feeling but it's a pop record and now we're making ambient music so like it's i explore music a lot and i don't like to be stuck in a 
in one genre. I think an artist uh, is allowed to just explore. Uh, but none of the music we've made and released so far is extremely resembling of anything we play at Leilet. We're exploring it now a little more because obviously most of what we listen to now is the music we DJ, the music we play. So naturally our minds and our spirits are going towards creating more and more music like this. Uh, but we're doing it our way and, uh, and again, honoring the past, honoring the history. So right now we're in an exploratory phase, for example, where I'm learning uh, Arabic singing and uh, uh, Arabic music theory and Nadim is learning how to play Daoud. And so we're taking this pause in creation to learn all these things so that we could honor them in the music we make. Uh, but the music we make is like, it's, it's in three languages in English and French, and you could mistake it. Some, I mean, a lot for most of our career, we were trying quote unquote to be white. And then the shift happened on the last record we released. So we're like enough coincidentally with Lailit. So with the same idea of reconnecting to our roots, two very different approaches were born and we didn't force anything, any of the two onto each, onto the other one. Like we don't perform uh, our songs at Leilet, like it doesn't make sense yet. So Leilet for us is not this, this way of getting famous or getting our band up or anything. Like it's not at all how we approach it. On the contrary, it's been a very freeing experience because as Leilet thrives, it really frees us as a band musically to do whatever we want, because there's, it's no longer the imperative of like, oh, we need the Spotify single and we need to make it. And we need to go to South by Southwest. Like these things are all gone now from our minds because we have this thing that is sustaining us also. So it's been a very big blessing to be, to be freed like that, actually. Yeah. Thank you for that. Um, I only have a couple other questions. You've been, well, it's okay. I'm, I'm here. <laughs> But I did want to get um, this tool of reconnection, right? I feel as if, let, let's be general and say Canada and the U.S., but being an ethnic minority or a minority in general comes with some trauma, right? Mm -hmm. Oppression, trauma of migration, of travel. But being, a, being Arab or being part of the Swana diaspora, I feel, comes with a specific set of traumas. And you said this quote that really stuck with me when I read it, but it was the particular importance of those who have fled the Middle East and war and uprisings and refugee crises, right? And it, it is, I don't want to paint with a broad brush, but if you look at Lebanon and Tunisia, Iran, Afghanistan, like it is. I mean, all of, all of the countries. Yeah, I'm sorry, but I didn't want to say it. But yeah, you know, yeah. Um, and so I think... I'm going to let you speak. I'm sorry, but I do think there is a particular importance of Leilit and of this scene in reconnecting people through these traumas or not through these traumas, but, you know, allowing them to have a future. And I don't know if you wanted to say anything on that part. Well, I grew up in, in the war. Uh, I was young, obviously. I mean, I was from one to nine years old. So I lived it very much almost like that film, the Italian film, La Vita e Bella, where like parents were trying to shield us as much as possible from the realities. But it's still a fact that I spent, I grew up in a, in a very comfortable, relatively wealthy family. You're not spared from these traumas with class. Like 
war is war. And I still spent a lot of my childhood in underground shelters because our building could collapse any moment. Like, so these are not things that I was thinking about because you repress them and they just become part of your personality somehow. But what it also does to you is when you come to a place like America, it contextualizes and, and rel rel relativizes the problems. Like sometimes you see what people are complaining about here and you're like, really? Like, that's the big issue right now. Like you should just be grateful that you even have that thing that you're complaining about. And so not to look condescendingly on it, but sometimes it's a little bit disturbing to see and on one hand, the fragility around us here, and on the other hand, their complete disregard of what's happening everywhere else in the world. So we're definitely hoping to share a little bit of that sentiment without being preachy. Uh, but it's but we approach our lives here in America with a lot of awe. I think a lot of immigrants are very appreciative of despite all the difficulties, but there, there's an appreciation to the fact that the place is trying to be welcoming, you know, which is not something you can say about a lot of places we come from, you know, like there's a lot of intolerance still existing in those regions. And a lot, I mean, we're not going to get into details of this, but a lot of this intolerance was caused by colonization and then particularly Christian colonizations and these kinds of guilts that were imported from Europe back then and and as europe evolved and the region was kind of like constantly kept in a state of war by the same powers that had already invaded it originally so it, it became this really nasty vicious cycle where we were not in a position to evolve culturally because we were too busy with wars too busy being manipulated against each other whether in a country or between countries so there's this feeling in our region that we've been played a little bit. And the irony of it is that we still immigrate to these countries that we believe are playing us. So there's a very difficult feeling to live with. I don't live in America, but I think if I did, I would feel very conflicted contributing to this society, paying taxes to a country that is actively messing up our region. So it's, I mean, Canada is not uh, where I live. It's also very guilty of this. And it's, there, there's this weird dichotomy of like, we're here and maybe we shouldn't be here, but as a per, on a personal level, it's, it's the only place where we can come deal with these traumas because for a lot of people, it's just impossible to live happily where you, where you were born. And that's a curse. That is very, very heavy. Mm -hmm. And I can speak for the Lebanese experience. It's a very difficult experience to, to grow up Lebanese and, and with this idea that the only opportunity for your dreams is outside and that you would have to leave your family and have to leave your friends. Then add that being queer and like, okay, well, there's no way for me to live here openly and happily and without like, uh, watching over my shoulder all the time. And so it's, I, I've always regarded it as a curse that I had to leave, that there was no option when I grew up that I could see myself staying there and being happy. So when you bring this over here, 
you could do one of two things either completely get negative about it or you could use this kind there's a wisdom that comes with with having lived through this like i'm not 20 anymore you know i'm approaching 40 and i've processed this and i think one way to give back to our community but also to the communities who who um hosted us like america and canada now that i'm a part of this society and that i feel like i'm a valid part of it because i haven't arrived yesterday you know like i've spent half my life here and i feel like i now well, I've felt this for a little while now, but that my my voice has importance here, and I'm as much entitled to my opinion on the society than anyone else, whether born here or not, and that my voice counts and my vote counts. And so the idea is to, through artistic activity, whether it's Laylit or my band, is to bring in this perspective mm-hmm. uh, to to the cultural space of like you can see things a bit differently. Why don't we, for example, with the case of Leilit, we could have easily become an exclusive party and be like Arabs only or Swana only or queer only. But we're trying to show that it's possible to coexist. And I think in America, that's the most important thing to say today politically. Uh, All we hear about is people on the extremes. Like people are not interested in moderation, they're not interested in whatever's going on in the center. So what we can bring, since we're not in politics, so it's like a side art, that's the importance of art. Like we bypass the political conversation and we come in saying whatever needs to be said, but a different way. So when you come to our party, what I'm hoping you can leave with is, oh my God, what if the world outside this room was like this? And that's just a little thought. So if there's other people working on other, other things, whether it's lawyers or politicians or educators, if everyone puts in a little bit of that sentiment, maybe we can get away from this like left-right mentality of like Republican versus Democrats and whatever. I mean, which is very, it's the same as world music. It's just these stupid labels that, and we're focusing on three or four issues like gay rights and guns and all these things, suddenly they're defining us, you know? But what about like the probably 90% of things that we actually agree on, we don't ever talk about. So that makes me personally very sad to see this because I really believe that most times where like a Republican meets a Democrat is they have a regular conversation that is not about those four issues. They'll find that they're just like nice people who just were taught to care about different things. And we're also taught to antagonize people who don't agree with them on these things. And as much on the left as I am politically, I really have a lot of trouble dealing with how my group, the left, deals with the right. Like I just, I can't stomach it. I just find it. It's the same way, like I, I, I see Christians being cruel and then praising the Bible, which tells them don't be cruel. I mean, it doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. And so if you want to be on the left and on the compassion side and on the let's care for each other and then hate half the country, that doesn't make sense to me. So I'm trying to foster these environments where people 
connect over something else in hopes that maybe friendship will start and conversations will start. We don't get very political at the party because of this. Like this is, we're trying to provide this, this space where you connect on other things. And we like having these these areas at our parties where you can just talk. Like it's there's always multiple rooms, and every smaller venue we've been in before has had this kind of like area where people can just network and meet and eavesdrop on each other or whatever, you know. And so, yeah, I mean, I I really hope that's what we can bring to to the table beyond the music and beyond everything. It's this idea of of like the possibility of coexistence without conflict. And we could disagree, I mean, of course, but this automatic dismissal of the other side is, is something that is very dangerous, as, especially as, and I'm gonna get gloomy now, but as the world is getting more and more difficult to live with and the potential global climate catastrophes that are coming, if we don't work on this, it's just gonna be clans like the last of us at the end of the day. You watch that show, you know what I'm talking about. It's just going to be little communities separated from each other, going back 600 years back to like complete communitarism and fights and killing. I mean, when you remove the resources, who knows what's going to happen if we're polarized like this, you know? Yeah, no, of course. And I... Fun times. <laughs> I, I do think, and this is something that I think about a lot. Um, you know, I feel like, especially, let's say, white Americans or people who have been a little disconnected from their cultures can forget how bad that is. You know, my parents left a civil war. And so that always stays in my mind. Like, sometimes people on, on the right and on the left will say words without knowing what they mean. And that does concern me. That does concern me greatly, I would say. Like what words, for example? I don't know. I get very concerned. I mean, because I think it's more clear on the right, and I do want to make that clear, but there are some times with leftists where they'll say, you know, they'll talk about just definitively like revolution and overthrowing and, uh, you know, just these words. And I'm like, guys, that means innocent people dying. Like there's no other way. That means civilians being hurt. I yeah. know, you know, even if you're coming at it, everyone thinks they're right, right? Everyone thinks that they are the correct and I don't know why I'm saying all this, but they, they are the say all be all, but those words have consequences and people will get hurt that have no right to be hurt or don't need to be hurt. And also the relativity of all the words too, because when you say a word like oppression, it's kind of relative in a way. Like at, so, at, at this point, like if you're not allowed to read a book in high school, it's called oppression. But what do you tell someone who comes from a place of complete and utter oppression and they hear that, oh, they banned this book in high schools now. So now the left is saying that we're oppressed because we can't read this book in high school now, which is a fair argument to make, but it's the choice of words, as you say, that feeds this, fuels this, this conflict yeah. between, between the two sides. I mean, America is not the only place with two polarized sides. It's just that the narrative and the historical context of it is very weak. Like people don't get taught a lot of history of world history uh, compared to even in Europe, like people are taught much more world history to contextualize a little bit more what's going on in their own country. 
so yes, I don't blame anyone for this. I just blame the only way to blame people is that they're not demanding more education, I guess, in a way, because a lot of the problems come from ignorance right now. And we've gone way beyond the scope of talking about parties and everything, but it's like this ignorance that's, that's plaguing this whole continent, I would say it's like narrow. It's not even ignorance. It's narrow minds. Like, like we're like, we learn about who we are and that's enough because we're the best. So let the others learn about us. I grew up learning French history and U.S. history. Like I knew all these things. I'm not expecting people in America to know Lebanese history, you know, but just broad strokes of the world war would be appreciated. You know? mm-hmm. And, but because it contextualizes your suffering, your own suffering, it can be a very, history can be actually a very healing tool. Yeah. For on the personal level, like if you're going through some shit and you think it's the end of the world, contextualizing it through history, through even like, for example, a lot of things that helped me, like when with my queer struggles is to look at queer history and not to compare myself with, with people, but to just contextualize that I'm living my struggles from a much easier place than other people were. And be inspired by the fact that when these people were faced with these problems, they didn't go on Twitter and complain. They just organized and they just moved and they probably cried and got depressed and all these things too. But like making a real action versus like complaining. And I feel like complaining has become the new activism. I mean, there's amazing activism happening. Don't get me wrong. But on the general, like there's a lot of like, I'm complaining, therefore I'm an activist kind of attitude today that is not helping at all. And it's just actually creating more problems. Yeah. And that's why I, I, I stop. I mean, honestly, after the pandemic, I'm like, I'm really done on a personal level, like showcasing my beliefs on Instagram and things like that. Like I'm really, there's no point. There's no point. It's become a game. It's like saying like, I'm pro this and pro that to me, it has become the equivalent of putting a filter on your photo. You know, it's like, look, I'm so, I'm so good. I, I, I want the rights of these people. And, but it doesn't change anything. Unfortunately. I mean, that's sad. I wish it did. I wish posting something on Instagram changed. There's cases where it does mm-hmm. and cases where it needs to be done. But I find that people are too, too easily relieved by be like, oh, I posted about it. My job is done, you know? Yeah. So that that's, that's the problem. And obviously not everyone can solve everything, but there is this general sentiment of, of laziness and, and intolerance. And I find the people who are most intolerant are the ones who are preaching tolerance, which is very ironic. Yeah. So, because if you're preaching tolerance, I assume, you know, a little bit what you're talking about. So why aren't you more tolerant versus people who are have not been taught these principles, who have not studied this and who have not been taught to be tolerant, being intolerant, you know, at least, I mean, it's not completely accurate, but they have like some sort of excuse. Whereas you are coming say from an academic circle where you've studied this stuff, for example, and then you're telling me to be tolerant and then being completely intolerant to a whole bunch of people that it doesn't, that's just not my vibe. I, uh, I acknowledge the, actually, I really do acknowledge the need for 
radicalisms on each side. But the problem is that the way our media have constructed today is that we only hear about these sides. We don't hear about the center. Yeah. And going back to, to our mission artistically for me is to really reclaim the center as this place of processing and healing, you know, and I think this sums it up a little bit, uh, philosophically. I want to think, I want to talk about real quick. Way earlier you said that Laylit was almost like a drop in the bucket of this movement, right? And if we think about it in terms of both this specific diaspora, Swana, and the greater diasporas in this country, whether they be Black, Latin, um, East Asian, what would you want people to take away from Leilit 10 years in the future? Or what, what would you want them to say, like, this is what we helped push in the conversation? I mean, I think we, we did touch upon all this, but I, if I had to give one answer, it's really, I mean, I don't see Lailit as this major change or disruption in anything, but, but again, if there's one thing I wanted to come out of it is that on the musical front is that there's richness in our region's music beyond what you imagined and not more or less than other regions, but it's been typically seen as a very monolithic region musically and culturally. So, so on the cultural side, I'd like people to leave with a little more understanding of the nuances of, of, of our culture. No one's going to ever understand it fully. I will never understand it fully. It's too big, but just this idea that to break the stereotype and, and hopefully inspire people from our community and from other communities to be like, it's possible to make a space if you come at it from, from a place of intention and, and I would say even kindness, honestly, and that's something we always wonder about our status. Are we too nice? You know, and I always tell the other two, like, this is how we do it. And if this means we go slower or faster or anything, it doesn't matter. Like we have to go about this from, from a place of, of not pure, but like a good intention. This isn't about fame. This isn't about money. This is really about a bigger mission to take space. And I think this mission is not specific to our community. And when we, when I say we're in a drop in a bucket, I include our work with the work of all the other minorities. It's like, it's this idea that we need to get to a point, hopefully in 10 years, which listen, I'm as optimistic as I am, I don't think that's where we're headed, but we're trying to mitigate the effects of segregation at this point. Like we're gonna, we seem to be headed in a, in a place where we are all going to separate from each other. Uh, so we're trying to really alleviate a little bit of that and, and try to get people together, uh, instead of away from each other. And I definitely see in the future for Laird more and more collaborations with other communities and other parties from other communities, just to not end up being ghettoized and like, okay, here are the black parties and the Arab parties and the Asian parties, you know, like at some point we're going to like, as we all form our individualities, we're going to need to like find a way to come together somehow 
so that eventually, hopefully, it no longer becomes defined by where we're from. And it's just a cool party scene. And New York is a very good place to do that, honestly. And it's infectious because once New York does it, the other cities look at New York and they're like, we want that too. So yeah, hopefully people can look at us in 10 years and be like, they were part of, of the creation of this inclusive and, and collaborative scene that has now become God knows what it will become in 10 years. I don't know. But, but hopefully they'll also look at us and be like, oh my God, they used to call this like an Arab party. How like, it's so like reductive. Like I just also want them to judge us in 10 years because, because as a collective movement, we would have gotten to a place where it's like totally unacceptable to say Swana techno anymore, because it's, you know, like that's the dream is that they look at us as old school kind of people who were doing it like, but I mean, and also acknowledged our, our contribution, but I'm hoping that the next generation will do it even more freer than we are. Yeah. So, so hopefully we'll be these, these, uh, old schmucks soon enough, you know? That's all you can hope for, right? <laughs> that's all that's, I mean, what more can you ask for? You know, I want to be an old fuck. Oh my God. That's so funny. <laughs> Before we close out, is there any other cities you guys are going to go to? I know there's been Toronto, Montreal, DC, New York. Where else are you thinking about? Like, we haven't really done Toronto yet. Uh, we dipped our foot in it once at the beginning and it's been a very tricky city to approach, but we definitely have other cities on our mind. I mean, I'm not going to make any promises. But the, we're gonna, there's definitely thoughts of going to the other coast mm -hmm. very soon, most likely this year. Uh, and uh, we always think about Europe, but I think for now that's not a pri priority for us. But there's other cities. I mean, I don't like to say where and when until it happens, but so far we're in Montreal, Ottawa. Detroit, Washington, and New York. And I can make a very clear promise that there will be more cities this year, but I don't want to, I don't want to give any false hopes because it's, we're very particular about starting in a new city and doing it right. You know, DC took a year and a half to find the right way to do it. And still, when we start doing it, it's still going to improve and, and get refined. But it was a GC was one of the trickiest, actually, places to start in for multiple reasons, which I will not get into. But we didn't want to do it until it felt like we were doing it right. Okay, so, I can respect all of that. Yeah, yeah. So that's the situation with Toronto now. For example, it's been two years we wanted to go, and it just hasn't felt like right. The opportunities, the venues we talked to, like nothing has felt like that was going to be the right vibe for us. So we're not going to force ourselves to go just because it's the biggest city in Canada, you know, mm -hmm. like we don't really, we don't really care. Interesting. It's okay. about finding the right space and right mood for our community to, to thrive and to get all these things we talked about today, they need to be in place for this party to work. Yeah. Otherwise we're just a party.
without a mission, without a feeling. And so, yeah. And especially just for what it is, right? Like the space is super important. Like it is what drives the whole car. Yeah, I, that makes yeah. sense. The space and the people and who you attract and who you partner with and even the way the booker of the venue speaks to you is important because it shows you whether they're going to help you foster that space or whether they just want the money out of it, you know. And we've been very lucky to have found all these venues we are in now because they're all extremely helpful in helping us evolve. And DC, we've only done one party. so. We're very far from the optimal vibe we want to create there, but we're going to come back a lot. And usually by the fourth or fifth party, it's the sweet spot has, has been reached, you know, and then it's about trying to keep it fresh. Mm -hmm. But I would say that there's still, there's still a bunch of, of work to do in Washington. And hopefully if you keep coming, you'll, you'll see it evolve and you'll see us because we also need to understand the people in DC. Like we don't, we don't treat every city like it's the same people. Every city has, like, if you come to parties in different cities, it's like almost different parties. We just really cater to people in different cities because there are very drastic cultural differences between Washington and New York. Like, it's not, it's not a homogeneous situation where we could just do exactly the same thing we do and then people will buy it. This is not like a rock show, you know? Yeah. So um, even a comedian will insert jokes about, oh, DC, I've been to this place. And I, we're, we're, obviously, there's a core thing we do and we do in every city, but then you have a good 25% you have to cater. Even the, the bookings and like, for example, in Detroit, the party is way more electronic and way more techno oriented. We can't, like, if we had done this the first time in DC, people would have been like, what's happening? What is this? Like, this is not... But I thought it would be so. We it's managing expectations, trading. I mean, it's a lot of it's a lot of work. It sounds like a lot of work. I feel like that's a whole other episode. Just getting more into it. Like yeah. it's, I'm so interested behind the whole machinations. That's the making of. Yeah, that's yeah. that's a different conversation. <laughs> Where can people find you? Most of our communications are through Instagram uh, at Laylit Party. Uh, there's a Facebook, but honestly, it's it's very underused. Uh, and we personally really like communicating through newsletters. So if you go to our Instagram, there's a link in the bio where you can subscribe to newsletters. And we usually announce shows there first and early bird tickets and things like that. Because the farther we can get from social media, the better, but obviously you can't escape it. But it's, yeah, mostly Instagram and that newsletter, I would say are the two best ways to, to reach us. Okay, I'll put that all in the podcast notes. Thank you so much. This has been great. really great. Thank you. It's been a really cool conversation. Quite accidentally, I, um, I, I, I'm not going to say I mistimed this episode because it was supposed to come out before Miami Freedom Project. But given the state of how things are uh, in Florida, I decided to move things around given the state of the U.S., you know, national politics at the moment. Uh, I put Miami Freedom Project ahead of this. And in doing so, I didn't realize I was timing this with the holy month of Ramadan, first of all, which I believe starts tonight, and the 20th anniversary of 
the Iraq war invasion. And this gave me pause. Um, I really didn't know if I should delay this episode or, you know, push it back a couple of days or I, I was unsure with of how to move forward. And I think the most important part I, I I'm taken back to what Phil said earlier in the conversation, right? Where he said it, if he were a US citizen, it would give him pause that the tax dollars go to these colonial ventures. And I it, it's you know, it has given me pause. It he got me. He he got me with that one. I it's so complicated, right? I think what we have lost lately, in my opinion, is the ability to hold two things at once. What I mean by that is this. I believe I can be grateful for the sacrifices my family made and grateful for having grown up in the United States while also being critical of the nature of this country. Because I, I think that's, I don't, I don't know if those things are incongruent with each other, right? I, I think they're, they're in complete conversation because that is the nature of this country's project. It's the nature of doing better than the day before. Uh, yeah, we're in, we're in weird times and I hope when at the beginning I said, Lit is an inspiration to me. Um, I mean that. I, I think it's really cool what they've done. And I want to extrapolate a little more because I said that they were a dance party for the Swana diaspora. And that's, I would maintain that's pretty true, right? I would say that it's definitely tailored to a certain audience. But that feeling of home, I think, is universal, in my opinion. I felt very welcomed whenever I go. And that sense of, Cohesion is just, is a beautiful thing. What I've been trying to do with this podcast is build on intercultural dialogues and hear people out. And yeah, I aim to be forward looking. I aim to be inclusive. But in a weird way, I agree with Phil. I think the ultimate goal for all of us should be to outdate ourselves, you know, to succeed enough so that whatever comes next isn't the new abnormal, right? It's just the norm. I think that's really cool. Um, I'm Once again, I just want to reiterate, I'm really grateful for the time Layla took and Phil took to come on this show. Really grateful. All their links are in the description down below. Uh, including specifically the newsletter and their Instagram. Yeah, thank you for coming on. I hope you guys have enjoyed this conversation. This has been Minority Report with me, your host, Salomon Flamenco. You can follow our Instagram down below. And if you want to continue the conversation, please email us at minorityreport.beat at gmail.com. Don't forget to follow, rate, and share with everyone you know. We will see you next time.
next week, next time.